Because democracy basically means government by the people, of the people, for the people. But the people are retarded. Anonymous. This is a podcast. I hope you enjoyed that profound wisdom from the Eastern mystic Osho. I also hope it didn't offend you. Uh, The joke works a lot better. You can look it up on YouTube. It's funnier when you see him in his funny turban and his big wizard beard. It's not a political statement. It's just a funny meme. (laughs) Anyway, my guest... This episode is Sophia Roeklin, who wrote a very good book about ayahuasca. I'm going to introduce her more at the end of this. Uh, I want to ramble, okay? My podcast, I want to ramble. But a lot of times when I listen to podcasts, I just skip the rambling at the beginning. So feel free to do that. Really do. But the main thing I want to talk about is... uh, kind of New Year's stuff, one year of podcasting, what I've learned, and also to promote my novel, which I released like a year ago, but I never promoted it on my own ayahuasca-based podcast, <laughs> even though it's it's a very ayahuasca-y, supernatural thriller-y novel. Uh, I think I was just too insecure, and I needed to kind of move on, and there was other stuff going on in my life. But I'm going to promote it, tell you a little bit about it. Curious? Here we go. New year, new you. Have you uh, made a lot of plans and then attacked them with a burst of energy and then exhausted yourself in two weeks? I have. And I'm going to go ahead and project onto the collective that I'm just tapping into the collective here. We're all kind of feeling this. This isn't just (laughs) how I've approached the new year. But I remember doing this last year, too. I think you kind of put stuff off around the holidays, go into dormancy, and then you start tackling it again, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. So don't overwhelm yourself. But I've been thinking back about uh, what I've learned from doing this podcast, and it's important to remember for me that when I started, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. Like, literally none. I just, it was kind of peak pandemic And I needed to process my ayahuasca experiences of a few years, uh, particularly in the light of when coronavirus came and uh, everyone started getting really weird with conspiracy theories and stuff. Like I needed to connect to people who I had had a shared experience with and see how their lives were and how they were reframing their experience. And so I did. I just... Wanted to see if people would talk to me if I got cool artwork. And that was really the trick. I just got cool artwork and then uh, convinced people to talk to me. And then slowly I started um, 
experimenting with could I reach out to people whose books that I read and I liked and would they talk to me? And I was very surprised that mostly everyone said yes. So then I had to interview them and I was fucking nervous and I didn't know what to do and I get slightly better at it every time. But that's what's fun about doing this is that it's completely unpredictable. It's not just me and my own echo chamber. A lot of times before I do an interview, I have some preconception of who this person is or how this might go or what we might talk about. And we never, ever talk about like almost any of those things. The conversation happens organically. It's a meeting of two minds. A, a third result that is greater than the sum of its parts emerges. It's fun. That's why I enjoy it. Can you hear my dog chewing on a bone? <laughs> That's another way I've changed is that I, it's not that I don't give a shit about audio anymore, but it's like, what are you going to do? Am I going to re-record all this because my dog's chewing a bone? No. It adds flavor. The lesson here that I would like to say is slow organic growth. That's how I've been thinking about projects in my life. I like to model it against nature of being like a seed and you plant the seed and you let it germinate. And you don't expect fruit right away. You got to tend it. You got to water it. Let the tree grow. And maybe when it's ready, you'll get some fruit. All right, my book. Do you know I wrote a book? It's fiction. It's called The Eagle and the Condor, which is a... uh, I don't know where the myth originates. It might be an indigenous myth. It might not. It just was kind of percolating in the ayahuasca e cultures I was in. But basically, the eagle and the condor is a prophecy from 500 years ago that the paths of the mind and the heart would reunite. And I found that myth to be very interesting, particularly in the context of where I was at in my life, where I was working at a tech startup and every once in a while going to the Amazon, not the Amazon, the Andes Mountains to drink ayahuasca. So I had these two very different environments percolating in my life. I remember taking a walk with my my manager at the time, who was like this dude in his mid-30s, and it was right after winter, and we're in downtown, and it's like the first nice spring day, and you know, everything's very active and bustling. There's people outside and dogs and birds and I felt like the end of a long hibernation. And I'm remarking, hey, it's it's really popping out here. And he looks at me and deadpan says, yes, well, heat is a measure of energy. That's how he was interpreting <laughs> it being nice outside. And I worked with a lot of these kind of... Uh, I don't know, they're not idiot savants, but like, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley type, these tech nerds, they're kind of, I mean, I like these, some of them were, uh, I like them personally, but they did view the world in a very specific way. And contrasting that with these, uh, you know, big, open-hearted, everything's about love and fear, just have your love conquer the fear, man. I was also hanging out in those circles, and it was just such a um, interesting cocktail of influences on me. And I always wanted to write a book, and some 
at some point when I was doing ayahuasca, I think I came up with the idea for it, uh, a way to explore this of a kind of supernatural thriller somewhat modeled after Michael Crichton type uh, techno thrillers where a well-meaning but uh, naive scientist messes with forces he doesn't understand. And in this case, a Silicon Valley wonder kind gets some money for a research study with ayahuasca, but really he's investigating uh, the spirit world and he goes a little too far. And he lets something out that shouldn't have gotten out of Pandora's box. So that's the, the, the basic premise. But then within that, of course, I was exploring way too much of myself. The main character is just a very thinly veiled version of myself, as uh, many a young fiction writer is prone to do. But I was uh, figuring out what was going on through all my ayahuasca experiences. I had a disease that I was trying to overcome, and my relationships were a mess, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and just a real kind of dark night of the soul introspection period. And so... All of that made it into a book in probably ways that I can't openly discuss. I could only put it down through a veneer of fiction, even though it was pretty much a one-to-one mapping of what I was experiencing. So it's, it's extremely raw, but I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of what I achieved there. And then after I was done writing it, I spent about two weeks looking for a traditional publisher, and I was like, nah, fuck it. I just want to move on. So I just self-published it and kind of distributed it to family and friends and a couple other sources. But I never really made any effort to try to uh, have other people read it. And uh, maybe you would be interested in it. If you have listened to this podcast, I think you will identify with some of the themes and the experience. I think I did a fairly good job of capturing what it's like to do ayahuasca for the first time and have your models of reality kind of evaporate around you and melt and distort and am I projecting things or are they really happening? Are these external demons or just my own internal demons? It's all in there. So that's it. That's my, my pitch. I think it's on, it's on my website if you Google my name, natefalkoff.com. Okay, that's it. I did my my baby justice. I mean, and this wasn't like a short... Like, I spent like two years writing this. <laughs> I At one point, I lived in a cabin in Maine for two months, just doing nothing but writing. It was like a big project. And uh, I suppose I it deserves for me to treat it with more attention than I have given it. And not to be afraid to put myself out there, I suppose, is what it really boils down to. So I'm promoting it. Go me. Okay. Sophia Roeklin joins me. Sophia, along with Daniel Pinchbeck, wrote this really great book that I highly recommend, When Plants Dream. It's kind of scholarly and journalistic, um, an overview of the, the psychedelic renaissance and the 
emergence of an ayahuasca culture as it spreads around the globe and Westerners flock to South America. It coins a, a term I hadn't heard, neo-shamanism, which uh, you might be able to guess what that is. White people. Um, <laughs> it's such a good book. It, it can be a little bit of a... It's fun because Sophia is an anthropologist who spent a lot of time in the Amazon um, doing various things, but also drinking a lot of ayahuasca and working with indigenous people. And uh, the way an anthropologist views ayahuasca might be different than you as a recreational seeker use it. So it's fun to put on that hat and kind of study it, or I think it is, from that that zoomed out view and compare the different cultural traditions and how they contrast and how they might have served the populations that birthed them and what that means for how you make meaning out of your own experiences and all right I'm going to shut up and just listen it's it's a good conversation and Sophia is very smart she's one of those people that is very articulate and made me feel smart just talking to her. But then when I listened back, I was like, oh, I wasn't smart. She was just articulate. <laughs> and that made me feel uh, smart. Anyway, here you go. Enjoy. So, yeah, so I met Daniel many years ago. Uh, he started this organization called Evolver which also is kind of a sister organization of Reality Sandwich. And at the time, Reality Sandwich were these kind of mavericks of psychedelic literature online. Um, and so at the time I was, you know, I was naturally gravitating towards studying different cultures and alternative sort of social organizations. Um, and yeah, I met Daniel when I was working at Evolver. And then over the years I had, kept him abreast on my strange psychedelic journeys. And uh, he had kind of, I had showed him some of my writing and he really liked it. And then the book itself came into fruition many years later. Um, he had actually been uh, asked to write a book about ayahuasca. And at the time I, I had already spent quite a few years living in the Amazon and I was studying environmental conflicts and, you know, I was basically studying angles of the whole globalization of ayahuasca that he may not have been. And we decided that it would be a kind of nice complementary pairing to join forces and, and write this book. So, yeah. It worked. Uh, what, yeah. <laughs> what were your, what were your angles? What were, cause it's hard to tell sometimes of, you know, whenever there's like a yeah. snide reference to the New Yorker, I'm like, okay, that's Daniel. But then yeah. what part, cause the tone blends so seamlessly. Sure. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm very glad to hear that because it felt a little bit like in the writing process, like stitching together a Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd say, you know, there were many different layers. Daniel always referred it to us as like painting layers upon layers of a thing. So I would paint on one layer. I, often I would kind of do one skeleton of a chapter and then he would go in and in his amazing way, synthesize information, draw from different philosophical schools of thought and all this stuff to kind of buff out and round out the writing. Um, and I, you know, I, I was really lucky to have a lot of contacts with people in the jungle. So a lot of the work 
that I contributed was more of the botanical specifications, um, more of the interviews with the people in the Amazon or the people that were working on the ground. And then Daniel, on the other hand, has just this enormous uh, network that he could access of people who are doing the more contemporary version of things. So some of the quote jet setting shamans and some of the more modern takes on things were more of his um, department. And then, you know, I mean, in his amazing way, he really brought a lot of the over, I, I would say, you know, he's really good at opening up a topic, right? Kind of posing things as a question, kind of presenting it as a rhetorical, something to meditate upon. So I think I, you know, I was, I can, I can happily take a lot of credit for the baseline research. And then I think he did a wonderful job at really bringing the questions and sort of the things that leave us hanging. But in the end, you know, I, funnily enough, I I wrote the part about the New Yorker because I just, (laughs) I just turned into such a sourpuss when I was writing this book. I was so disillusioned by the, what I experienced to be the commodification and the this and that. And then by the end of it, he was telling me like, dude, you got to chill out. (laughs) That's really funny. So, you know, yeah. Well, I can see that synthesis there of your two styles and I did appreciate it the book poses more questions than it answers, right. but it, um, in terms of the research, were you like ever huddled in an office together? Cause there's so much, so many good primary so sources. <laughs> okay. Cause like yeah. reading this, I'm like, if I flipped any of these pages, I bookmarked, I'm like, I need to read, uh, Wade Davis. Now I need to read mm-hmm. this essay. Like mm-hmm. there's just so many. So I was wondering, a lot of that had to be new to you as you were researching it, right? Yes and no. I think actually we both discovered a lot of the work together. Um, We did, we were in fact huddled in a small office um, at this place that is mentioned in the book called the assemblage, which no longer exists, but it was a kind of swanky co-working space. And I guess Daniel and I were like the writers in residence there and uh, in exchange for having office space, we would help promote events and do different kind of bring in different interesting characters to do talks, et cetera. So we were in a room together. And at some point, you know, I think we had a small budget for books and I had just finished graduate school. So I was, t- I had like my citation cap on, I was just going crazy and just looking at the best books. And then of course he would like come and say, Hey, had you heard of this amazing book? And I hadn't. And so we had two desks with maybe like 40 books stacked on them with highlighter and, you know, Sharpies and all this kind of stuff on them. So um, yeah. And, and I still, to this day, I probably have like a list of my top six authors on this, you know, on the subject of ayahuasca. Um, And, you know, this book couldn't have been written without like it's, it is upon their backs that we wrote this book, you know? So, Yeah. So yeah, fun, though. <laughs> it introduced me to a lot of different angles and schools of thought. Um, I wonder if we, I'm trying to decide whether I should start with sort of your experience in the Amazon or some of the things that I read. Let's start with the book for a second and we'll yeah, get Yeah, sure. Because one of the things that I kind of latched on to that was the most surprising to me was um, the contrast between the traditional what is traditional indigenous shamanism mm-hmm. versus what I've come to view as ayahuasca culture or contemporary culture, which has all this mysticism from 
all these different sources. And mm -hmm. at first it was very hard to separate for me when I'm just thrown into this environment, you know, what's coming from what. And mm -hmm. it's interesting that in some ways, like uh, Eastern Buddhism, for example, versus shamanism, very, uh, in some ways, non-compatible or paradoxical. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, this isn't a question yet, but it will be. <laughs> it's, it'd be open-ended. Uh, yeah. D does that, did that strike you when, I mean, you must have, being in the Amazon and being part of ayahuasca culture run into that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so to kind of piggyback on your, the open-ended thing, I think, you know, to go to actually back to how the book was written, I actually came into it like, wow, what a um, terrifyingly uh, obscure and just like kind of squirmy subject. How can I possibly begin to approach this, right? You could talk about the commodification, you could talk about the visions, you could talk about the indigenous histories. You, I mean, they're just a million angles. It's like a multifaceted, it's like a freaking fractal, you know, you could go down any path you want to. So what I decided to do was structure it by interviews. And so we conducted, honest today, I forget how many, but I want to say anywhere, I think we did almost 60 in like so many interviews, obviously some more formal than not yeah. And then what I started to do was analyze those interviews and look for common motifs that were popping up, right? Because it was, they were usually very open-ended conversations like, you know, how, so how did you get started? What is your you know, role? What is your relationship with the medicine? And, and there was more or less like a framework for interviewing people. Um, and then it was from there that the categories of the book emerged, including indigenous tradition and what we may perceive as the more kind of quote unquote classic versions of ayahuasca use versus the kind of neo-shamanic modern interpretations of these traditions that then get kind of blended into like the way that you and I might encounter ayahuasca broad. Um, but, you know, I think the deeper that I've gotten into it, and as you probably got a sense of in the book, is that like, you know, there was, there is no, the idea of some sort of pristine past original beginning is is a myth too right like even in in the amazon itself it was just it's con there's a constant trade of information and you can even see i mean i'm sure you know your listeners are following the work of graham hancock who is doing a you know ferociously <laughs> good job at uh uncovering the history of the amazon and different civilizations that may have dwelt there and as we know the landscape of the Amazon itself is actually a horticultural masterpiece that may or may not have been kind of crafted by human hands for the last 8,000 years. So there, that right there shows you that if there were organizations of people who were sophisticated enough to be, you know, developing agricultural societies, then why wouldn't there be a trade of information and so on? And even the archaeology of ayahuasca is quite interesting. People looking for the original vessels and such that, you know, these, these beverages were, were served in. And anyway, I could go on a whole long story about that, but it's constantly evolving is the punchline. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not familiar. I've read some of Graham Hancock's stuff, but the agricultural history of the Amazon. So in the sense that it's like a carefully 
uh, managed ecosystem with human, they're kind of in some way shaping it, although it appears to be pristine nature, it's in reality uh, a relationship with the people living there. That's that totally sense. that's totally right. And again, you're hearing it like a he said, she said sort of thing. So I would refer to his his work and his citations okay. to kind of be sure. But what I can tell you from you know my own experience and you know through other other researchers is that you know they as, as, interestingly and kind of paradoxically, as the Amazon is continuously deforested. Um, we see uh, new kind of, you, you, it's easier to understand patterns and growth. So people can actually go into those deforested areas and say, oh, wow, look, they're actually concentric circles of cacao trees that are growing here. Or, wow, look at this like strange old little plot of yucca. And there's something really interesting in studying what people call ADEs, uh, Amazonian dark earths. In Portuguese and Brazil, they call it terra preta, which is like terra preta. Um, and it's, it refers to this really dark kind of manufactured soils, these, these soils that were cultivated very intentionally for the purpose of agriculture with little shards of, you know, pottery. Apparently they're very, very rich in different microorganisms that allow for the flourishing of different, you know, fruits, fruit trees and such. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, a couple of years ago, there were some like definitely landmark, um, studies that revealed that the Amazon was like a big garden, you know, so go figure. (laughs) Yeah. I'll have to check that. I mean, that's kind of par for the course with other areas, like same with Yosemite Valley and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. people say, Oh, that's look how pretty it is. And it's just, it was just like that. No, there's people living for thousands of years sculpting it. Um, Right. Right. And how beautiful, right? How beautiful that you can see there's a, there's a, um, I don't even know what you would call her, material ecologist. She works at MIT. Her name is Mary Oxman. And she's like just a f- amazing philosopher and polymath, but she has this phrase I love. It's called mothering nature. And you really see how, you know, nature mothers the people of the forest and they also mother nature, right? They, they mother each other. So a symbiotic careful relationship i want to go back to the pristine uh original version of ayahuasca culture that i think a lot of people mythologize that was a big surprise to me reading the book of like okay the group ceremony is probably i don't know less than 100 years old the it might have influences from catholic uh spaniards who settled the like it's just a mishmash like everything else of different cultures. So what we think of, what I think of or thought of as the mm-hmm. traditional ayahuasca ceremony is just, you know, it's probably the last 20 years or something that they thought they could sell to white yeah. people. Right, right. Did that totally. surprise you or? Which part? You the kind of the, 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 misty, the sort of remixed versions of it or which part? I guess you started, uh, like anyone else, uh, either by going to South America or drinking with some neo shamans, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so we're of the similar options. age, uh, similar uh-huh. generation. We're coming uh-huh. into us. What we see is, yeah, that seems like it's old and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and that's the prevailing belief that I think many people were, were participating in this millennial tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, mm-hmm. there's this, some mystique, some mythologizing of it, I think. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, And that kind of completely shattered when I read this. <laughs> You're like, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. I, at least in my first time, I wasn't under any kind of illusion that I was getting like, you know, I was in a yoga studio in New York city, yeah. or, you know, or in like a squat or something. So already I think the veneer of like, you know, ancient mysticism had kind of like okay. just cracked a little bit, but Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I think it's also what's kind of what I started to realize is that, you know, the it's like the technology of prayer and of ceremony, and how there are certain there are different ways it looks, you know, but again, it's all about kind of the intention and, you know, some ceremonies I would go to there'd be very, very specific sort of rules and regulations about which way to walk around a fire, right? Or what time of the night you might start or what dietary, obviously, kind of protocols you may be asked to follow, um, celibacy and so on. And then there are also more modern versions that are just adapting to meet the consciousness of 21st century people. And I always think that that's really interesting is that, you know, maybe a ceremonial container uh, or the gestures or the songs or so on that, you know, served a function for some people in the past might not necessarily have that same value for us now. So I think in the end, at the end of the day, it's really about, and, you know, not to be cliche or to beat a dead horse, but it's about that intention, right? It's like understanding the technology of intention and what is the intention of us singing the song at this moment? What is the intention of having this fire here? What it, and really knowing deeply what it is that we're doing in it, but it's always going to look different. And, you know, the ceremony that may soothe the wounded hearts of the people of today isn't going to look the same as it will in a thousand years, but there will be common motifs because we are, you know, people and we're always just remixing life, you know? So, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's ever evolving. Um, yeah. I'm even, I think I read it in here that in some tribes, at least the traditional use was that the shaman drank and mm-hmm. the person did the healing Correct. was from the shaman either uh, transmitting stuff through the Icaros or w- whatever it is. But like, mm-hmm. you can get a sense how that's not going to work for Western people. <laughs> you know yeah totally it's like turn your phones off you know you're just gonna knock them down with a bit of psychoactive potion right yeah absolutely and but you know then again you're imagine right like imagine the people the communities that were just drinking you know let's say the the shaman or whoever was the the head of the ceremony was in charge and again you would even see this without necessarily like you know I, I if you've ever been to a museum and you see the kind of wax figurines of like a Siberian shamans beating the drum over the dead body of somebody you know it's like the the shaman is the designated traveler and it's not necessarily required for all the passengers to you know go along for the ride um but yeah it's there are so many different ways to to have it done and I and you know what I will say too I think that it's really I would I would say that it is probably like a net positive um I have many mixed perspectives on it but for westerners to go through this ordeal medicine right so that what what we call it something that's actually like not very 
comfortable. You know, ayahuasca, as you very well know, it's like a strong purgative and it can be harrowing and very dark and complex at times. And so, um, yeah. Well, I guess going back to the, briefly, we were talking about uh, the indigenous land use of cultivating the Amazon, like a garden. And what was the phrase you used? Mothering nature or something Mm -hmm. like that instead Mm -hmm. of nature mothering us. Right. Do you feel like that's like a feature of the ayahuasca experience of like, because I'm into foraging and land management and all these things. Now I wasn't at all before. Mm, And I was, I was doing other psychedelics, but they're really part of this other school of thought of like Mm -hmm. the ayahuasca thread seems to me very different. It's different than the futuristic techno utopian Timothy Leary guys, which are, that's kind of where I originally came from. Hmm. Um, And I don't know if it's just because I was experiencing indigenous traditions that must've been part of it, but I wonder Mm -hmm. how much of it how much of it is ayahuasca and how much of it is um, the environment, suggestibility, the setting that Uh you're being Uh introduced to those things in a a very direct way. Right, right. Great question that I do do not have the answer to, but (laughs) I've thought a lot about it. So I hope I can contribute something there. Um, Yeah, I mean, in, in the book, you know, I write a lot about the different I interviewed a lot of people asking them what, what kind of things were coming up for them. And one of my favorite interviews was some guy who said, I went back into the office that weekend and saw all of my plants were telling me that they were thirsty. <laughs> you know, he said he saw his plants, he saw his plants for the first time, right? Like in his office. And I found that to be quite interesting. Like, is there some sort of inherent quality or some maybe even intelligence, right? If you want to go that far in ayahuasca and the brew, or does it unleash some sort of a botanical loving consciousness in us? And I don't, I today would venture to say, yes, I think that there is some sort of tendency in our subconscious to bring us to things that make us feel good. Right. And we may or may not recognize what that is, but chances are eating really poorly doesn't make you feel good on a really deep animal instinct kind of level. And hanging out in big, you know, sleek metal building may not feel cellularly as satisfying as being in an Adobe breathing house. Like these are, it's complete speculation at this point, but I have noticed that it's enough of a pronounced motif that you know, I would, I think that there is something, there is something there. There is something there. Well, let's go further. Let's go. It is a great mystery. And I'm not one to say I'm going to solve it. But part of the, the ayahuasca mystery is that there is the idea that it's an intelligent embodiment of nature mm-hmm. or, and even within shamanism itself, that uh, the plants are talking to you. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard pill to swallow for the initial Western skeptic rationalist kind of person. Totally. Of which I was one. Right. Um, but that's kind of shattering. And it was directly as a result <laughs> of ayahuasca. Did you have the same uh-huh. thing? Uh, I personally did not because I actually, believe it or not, I took kind of the opposite route. I find myself to be much more sort of like a 
rational, quote unquote, rational thinker as I've gotten older. And I was like completely open to the woo younger and then I've kind of gone the other way. So uh, I'm like a, the other way. Everyone around. has to balance out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's been my, Most my people are unbalanced journey. in one way or another. And it's really about finding some moderation. Totally, totally finding that sweet Goldilocks path. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know what? I, I think speaking to what you were saying there, like talking, you know, how for many people, the idea that ayahuasca, which is like, isn't even one thing, it's like two things, right? Or it may even be three things if you have an admixture. So that's one very like crucial thing to look at, right? We're saying like, oh, the consciousness of the plant, but it's like, which plant? Is it the Sicotria viridis or the, the Chalipanga, the Dipodopterus, or is it the Bicapi? Which one may be, which one are you talking about? Right. So let's say the plants. The idea that plants themselves have a consciousness is like also might be a bit of an exaggeration, or it might be a it might be a heavy-handed anthropomorphization, just because that's like the only kind of clunky language that we can, you know, impose upon it. But let's look at the history of plants or psychoactive plants shaping society and consciousness. Like look at coffee, look at tea, look at sugar, look at cacao, look at tobacco. These are some of the bigger players that have like market or, or cocaine, if I didn't mention that one or marijuana, like these all create, these plants create cultures. Yeah. They create consciousness. Coffee culture is a thing. Cocaine culture is a thing. Look at the financial district, you know, sure. Uh, marijuana culture is absolutely a thing, you know, people from California speak like three words per minute, you know, it's like, it's just a different, <laughs> just kidding, love you, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's, so it, it isn't too far of a stretch to assume that there is a thing as ayahuasca culture. And there is a kind of, uh, there's a great word called egregore, egregore, I'm never sure if I'm saying it right, but it kind of, it's a, it's sort of a, a it's like it's it, it's kind of like a ta- it's a word that describes the meta consciousness of an organized group of people. So there's almost like let's say you have you know Facebook Corporation. There's like every, there's like the spirit of Facebook that lives through all of its employees, or there's oh, the yeah. spirit of something that you know what I mean. You're like interacting with some larger. There's so sort of a shared. Of- fiction that everyone believes in right and then shapes people's behavior and what's acceptable what's not totally unspoken norms blah 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 totally exactly a way of speaking a way of sleeping a way of this a way of that you know and and we create and so these let's say egregores egregores these kind of entities may be formed by concepts or mythologies. And I mean, if you need a substance to create a strong mythology, look no further than ayahuasca, right? It's like, oh my God, we have like a spiritual plant that we say is a she and she's from the mother of the Amazon and she's coming to save us from our, you know, vociferous appetites for, you know, our cannibalism as Western people, et cetera, et cetera. She is the antidote and that is, to me, what I see as one of the leading mythologies or the kind of the bodies that we are kind of wow. plugged into. Yeah. What a lens to look at it through. Because it, all, it, it does seem suspicious to me of like how human that myth is of like good versus evil and the, the savior <laughs> yeah. coming. It's like, it's very oh. like, it appeals to something very clearly in our storytelling hearts, our narrative hearts of like, uh-huh. it's, it's almost Star Wars-esque. 
yeah. and it frequently yeah. gets compared to Star Wars. And people right. are like, I think sometimes people view or are attracted to shamanism as a like kind of real world. I can gain power over the force and there's good and evil. And yeah. yeah. It's easier to walk the path of evil, but I'm going to walk the path of good. Yeah. Warriors of the light. Ever hear that one? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know light, I mean? light bringers or something. Right. That's kind of right. A, a new age concept that's imposed on it. Right. And Hey, I ain't, I ain't hating on it. I think it's a good one. I mean, we may, uh, that mythology may be what we need to create a better world. If it, you know, if that is what in fact we want or what the plants want, right. Right. What we think we want, but the plants are telling us to do. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting to view it that way because then it's like, okay, we're all in some way, everyone has a mythology, even if your mythology is like that everything's a myth or that everything's a story or everything's a model, you know, even that's a model. So I guess it comes down to like, is your model helping you? Mm -hmm. Is it beneficial? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally. So in what ways do you think maybe that model isn't beneficial? I I can think of a lot of ways that it is, Mm, but interesting. Well, that's a good question. The model being like, let's say the, you know, and and again, this is assuming that there is like a homogenous model, right? Because we could all be pointing to. And there isn't. It's an elephant and you're holding the tail or the, you know, that whole thing. But yeah, yeah, let's say that there is some sort I agree with you that there is like a definitely a thing and you can point to it and you know what it is. It's like, yeah. So. You know when you see it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, So how do I say this? Yeah. I think it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the main downfall that we all see or maybe even have personally experienced is the kind of spiritual materialism, the narcissism that tends to become extremely inflated right at the finish line before the ego is obliterated. And a lot of people (laughs) are like, just willing to go so far as like that total humiliation that it takes to like really become nobody. But, you know, unfortunately, if you are a spiritual warrior, you may, if you want to become a full-time spiritual warrior, need to brand yourself as such and, you know, hashtag spiritual warrior yourself and run hashtag me, me, me workshops about hashtag the thing you get what I'm saying. I could go on and on. And this is not intended to be cynical. I think I've just observed that it is an unfortunate kind of paradox of the culture that we live in is that if you, you, you know, you run into this really awesome lifestyle, this thing, you want to be a personal coach, you want to be a trainer, you want to be a plant medicine facilitator, whatever it is. And you want to, um, you want to show the world what you're doing. Right. And you want to receive validation for what you're doing. And that is all like, to me, I mean, what else, there's nothing wrong with it, but unfortunately it is a very tricky thing to have, um, to, to depend on ayahuasca as a source of income or depend on some of these, you know, what we deem or what we commonly believe to be sort of sacred and special as we start to monetize and commodify them. That's kind of like a really slippery Slippery slope. And, uh, yeah, I, I of course know those people, many of whom I I liked or still like. But yeah, um, yeah. It you is know a when dangerous. You, see it, though, you know, you know when you see it, and it's it's like there seems to be a a something 
that I feel they need to learn is that this thing is very important to me too. It changed my life, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be my life. Right. Right. Like right. I, I can still, I'm sitting here in Ohio doing my regular stuff and I'm just as more spiritual than I've ever been probably more yeah. spiritual <laughs> than when I was thinking I was, uh, yeah. you know, on this great vision quest mm-hmm. about to receive the word of God or whatever I thought I was doing. Right. You know, the whole experience for me, the journey was really just learning how to re- live a regular life and that I didn't need to go to the jungle 8 million times. Yeah. I mean, I needed <laughs> right. to do it as much as I needed to do it, but. Right. But to know your own path, but the great irony is that you and I, I'd say, you know, you have your podcast and I have my book and in some ways, like the identity <laughs> of ayahuasca is not, you know, like we're kind of taking it and running with it too. Right? Oh so yeah. Like, oh Yeah. You know, I, I have to poke a little bit of fun at myself, at least, because I know that, you know, I've a lot of I dealt with so much shame and guilt publishing the book. You know, I really, really did just like, God, like, you know, the kind of guilt that you experience in ceremonies where it's just like, you know, whipping you and you're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But I think that's I think the beauty of it is just in learning and just identifying the humor in it, you know, and just seeing that we're we're human and to just stay humble. And, and then reciprocity, I really do think is like the saving grace of all of these kind of uglier patterns that might emerge from our own kind of mapping ayahuasca into our own identities and consciousness without like giving back in some way. And it doesn't have to be like to the forest itself necessarily. Although I think, you know, the forest needs a lot of support, frankly, but you know, and just sharing your gifts in a beautiful and positive way that can be enough making the world a beautiful place. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot there. Yeah. I'm aware of my hypocrisy and any kind of venture where you're putting yourself out there. There's always a balance of like, are you doing this from an ego perspective? Yes. Are you doing this from a uh, desire to connect perspective? There's all of those layers are there and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, but I think, I mean, you can use hypocrisy if you want, but I mean, I think it's a cool, I think it's like, we can be harsh on ourselves about it, but then there is a thing I'm, I noticed that I have a tendency to like actually silence myself around a lot of this. And I've had to have a lot of people coax information out of me because I've secretly just like geeked out on this subject super hard for many years, you know? And, um, and in the end, there is, you know, the validation I've, I met, I was really lucky when I was doing my tour with, um, do you know, Shane Moss, he's a comedian. He does. I don't know him personally, but that's yeah. uh, how I first heard of you. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So Shane is like, you know, Shane was like, come on, Sophia, you got to go on. I'm trying to speak like I'm from Wisconsin, like, you know, <laughs> you got to go on tour with me. And so we, we ended up going, you know, all the way through the Bible belt and we went to extremely rural areas with large veteran populations. And I remember being in, in some very small town in Arkansas and I was like, my God, I would never, I have no reason to really you know, be here. Yeah. Not try really trying not to be snobby, but like I just didn't. There wasn't. It wasn't like a robust, thriving cultural, you know, hotspot or whatever. But we went to this little like bar thing, and and I did my talk about ayahuasca and what it was, and I had so many people come up and be like, "Wow, like I'd heard about this, and you know, I've heard about this for PTSD, and 
and it and some people even said I went to Oklahoma and I met a lot of people who there was a whole medicine circle there and people were saying they were super excited they had book clubs where they just sat and they met up and people from all walks of life just read different books about ayahuasca and things and I was like wow what a neat thing with what I believe to be like a really positive effect on people's lives so there's a there's humility and then there's the I love the expression. If you don't make, if you don't share your medicine, it'll make you sick. Mm. Right. So like, how can we learn to know when to share our medicine, but still share it because the world needs it. That's how it becomes a more beautiful place, you know? Yeah. Yeah, That's beautiful. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, I connected with that. I, I feel like the people in Arkansas need the medicine, some sort of medicine, uh, more than anyone, mm-hmm. it might be an easier, uh, less, more comfortable touring experience to do a yoga studio in Brooklyn and then hit up yeah, right. LA and right, right. But you'll probably be more surprised. And I mean, that I will say in my experience of doing ayahuasca with people mm-hmm. from all around the world, that was the most humbling and profound thing for me was connecting with people that on paper, I would have totally dismissed uh, judged as soon as I saw them. Mm -hmm. And then this great equalizer comes and squishes everyone down to the same level. hundred percent. I love that. Uh, Well, so you must've had the same experience. Oh yeah. Like gajillions of times. Absolutely. I think, I had, you know, the first thing that comes up to my mind comes to my mind is I, I worked at the temple of the way of light for like two and a half years. And, um, I was really lucky to spend a lot of time with the facilitators there. I myself was not facilitating. I was working in different permaculture and ayahuasca growing projects, but I got to hang out with these facilitators and I was just thinking about them this morning and what an amazing group of people they were, you know, people who really knew how to, they were at least a hundred ceremonies deep with Shipibo medicine. They, you know, really were very deep, awesome people. I a hundred percent love those guys. And, um, and Yeah. I mean, just being, but co-facilitate, I'd get to hang out with the facilitators and, you know, really have that kind of perspective of people coming from all around the world, from Korea, from Canada, from Australia, from, you know, Niger. I mean, people were coming from all over the world to experience the plant medicine. And that's when you can really see like, whoa, this rainbow Maloka of people. And you all, you know, at the end of the day, you're just some, you know, hot, sweaty bodies with mosquito bites <laughs> and fungal infections. And, you know, you're like, hey, this thing and, you know, whatever. Everyone's but diarrheaing. Totally. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't care if you work for, you know, Forbes or whatever. Like you have diarrhea like I do. Right? You know, I don't. A funny, so funny, an ethnobotanist friend of mine said to some kid once like, hey, you may have gone to Harvard, but you still don't know how to not shit yourself or something like that. So, yeah. It- becomes very collegial those retreats like by the end of it and then the sad thing is it just dissolves it's this temporary bubble where everyone kind of thinks that they have this utopia and it's like oh we're gonna keep in touch like oh i'm totally gonna visit you out in la and then uh it all dissolves 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the temple did its best to create uh, online forums where groups could still meet up and have WhatsApp groups. But yeah, I think inevitably things fade and fizzle. But then again, I do know people, I've met people around the world. And if I do end up in, you know, whatever, I'll, I can call that person. But you're right, it is, it is this kind of spontaneous, but you know what, part of the beauty too, I mean, this was more of like the privileged angle that I had to see many of these groups coming through is that the magic can just keep going and going. And there is this sort of thing where everybody is like so excited every time and is inspired. And it's like, you would come, you would see people there and like, this is obviously like a cartoonification of it, but you almost see their third eyes like calcified as they're like coming to the forest. They're so angry and everything. And then they come out and they're like, whoa, you know, their eyeballs are like super big and happy. And so, it's spontaneous and it dies, but then it's spontaneous and it's born again, you know. And it, it lives on in some context, maybe not the, the setting that it was born in, but it changes yeah. people's lives deeply. Yeah. I had yeah. sort of the same experience. I volunteered for a few months at the retreat center in Ecuador that I was at, and I would just watch retreat after oh. retreat come through. Okay. okay. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, people come in and like, like part of the culture at this retreat is like, we all greet them with hugs and stuff. And so many people are just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. and I was like, I get it. I was in your shoes a year ago. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. by the end, they're all hugging each other. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like remembering. Right. It's I sir, I will say that the pandemic has been like a, big forgetting for a lot of people about the, the kinship path. And I know that, but the beauty is that we'll, we'll come back to it, you know, but not to bring up the big P word. <laughs> no, I I'm curious but, about that because like this book probably came out, what, 2019, is that yeah, right? right, right? Like before. right before. Pretty and much. it's like, yep. that would assuredly be a chapter in here had it yeah. been written a year later, you know? Yeah. 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 I think I would have, you know, so I was thinking about how the book is like out of date. And sometimes I thought about if I were to go on tour with Shane again, you know, if I were to just get back up on stage and, you know, be like, blah, 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 ayahuasca, how tone deaf would it be? You know, would I just be like, people would be like, come on, update the material. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I was reviewing some of the material and it's like, over and over again, and this is what I was trying to kind of hammer in on the tour, especially the what the closest worldview that I had come to was the Shipibo, just by you know virtue of like living there for a long time, is this idea that our the health, our personal health is inextricably linked to the health of our environment, you know, and this goes way back to the beginning of the pandemic when we saw a lot of think pieces coming out like you know, we are hurting the animal people and that's why this is happening. But in some way it's true. You know, I mean, when we're really encroaching into deeper and deeper into territories and waking up, I mean, I don't honestly, epistem- like um, epidemiology, I don't know how this works, you know, but through zoonosis, different pathogens and bacteria and vi- viruses come and they infect us. So it's just a reminder that we're so deeply interconnected. And that is obviously like the crowned jewel of the ayahuasca experiences that we're all the fate, our fate is all connected. And we really see so clearly now we're like, wow, you have to just completely relinquish your 
mission and your, your idea of like, this revolves around me because right now the, the harrowing reality is that it just doesn't, we just have, we're surrendering to this greater cosmic story that's like playing out right yeah. now, you know, that is out of our hands in some way. Right. It isn't, it isn't. I mean, that's the great question <laughs> without going into that rabbit hole. But Well, we could get all into that. I mean, yeah, I think that is a feature of the ayahuasca experiences of the interconnectedness of you feel it very strongly with the people in your orbit in a ceremony. Mm-hmm. You feel it very strongly with the shaman and how they're shaping the experience you're having. Mm-hmm. And then you and then by extension, you might feel it with the entire environment around you or the start thinking about the air you're breathing and all the microbes and totally. the cellular level that you're experiencing. Totally. I mean, in terms of the pandemic, I, I know this kind of feeds into the ecological um, disruption. I came to ayahuasca because I had Lyme disease, which mm. is getting way worse. Uh, I mean, you're from upstate New York or New York, so you know. Like and yeah, when I was a kid, I would run around in the fields of Maine just playing, and that's where I got mm. Lyme disease. And like, it's just spreading so rapidly from yeah. ecological disruption. Totally. So it's like, yeah, we're in some big natural threats, <laughs> uh, and they're not done yeah. yet. Don't think so. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's yeah right I mean that's like that's the hook line and sinker and they're not done yet so what do we what do we do and to and to keep it on topic I mean with ayahuasca you know I think that it really I was kind of joking with a friend the other day that ayahuasca is like a gateway drug to science or psychedelics are the gateway drug to science you know I think a lot of people a lot of people's innate curiosity is woken up when they start to experience like the magical qualities of these things and they become more inquisitive and more intuitive. And I think that, I mean, I'm no expert, but I've, I've been always drawn to living in communes and communities. And, um, you know, so many people now are just returning to the land and to moving towards a kind of a less divided supply chain and becoming more you know, self-determined, I don't know what the word is, like sovereign in their production of means. And so that's something really interesting. And ayahuasca does, I think, naturally lend itself to those behaviors. I I saw it before and it's becoming more pronounced now, you know, isn't that interesting? It is interesting. And who knows if we were to look back at this time in 200 years as historians, we might see, oh, this social movement was caused because the income level, the disparity, and then mm. that caused people to recongregate in the home and embody shared values. It's like, mm-hmm. we're all being subjected to these grand social movements and political things. And for the most part, we're mostly walking around clueless. Correct. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Thinking I have total sovereignty, but like, no, you're subject to pretty big forces. Yeah. 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 I think Graham Hancock has a great quote, which I'm going to botch, but it goes something like, we are only so sovereign. If we have no sovereignty over our consciousness, how can we claim to be sovereign over anything at all? 
not verbatim, but it, it it's yeah. a kind of it's a it's a it's an argument for you know the consciousness of working with plants, right, and returning to plant consciousness and having the right that what I believe is the innate right to cognitive liberty, you know, and you know I'm I, I, I'm not talking. I don't even want to get into like conspiracy and vaccine all it just like keep me away from it right now but at least in terms of talking with the plants yeah i think that um that that one we really need to protect that one we really need to take really good care of is our is our right to to convene with plants and so houseplant business is booming right now who knew quarantine has been very good for that so houseplants are all the rage yeah. I mean, if, if I were to turn my camera around right now, you'd see my banana tree. I see you have like a, um, what do you call stag head fern? Is that a stag fern in the bucket? Over Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> oh, up, up in the corner. Yeah, I think that's there. dead. I didn't know you had to water that. No, not that top one, the behind it, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, good yeah. Guys. But yes, you know, you're looking green over there. Plants are in. <laughs> Plants are in. As Yeah, they're coming back for sure. We, we're coming back to them rather. But so. that's... But part of that, that is interesting to me about ayahuasca reconnecting something that, as you said, people saying they noticed their plants for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced it too, of like this, this sense of being interested in, I was used to be interested in like technology stuff and now I'm interested yeah. in organic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know what, I think part of it is, um, reconnecting with your own inherent soul or just self Mm -hmm. like I mean I think I came into it kind of being disembodied and Mm. not comfortable in myself or really ever um maybe that's a good avenue to talk about is sort of the mental health benefits or just overall benefits of ayahuasca because when I was doing it I remember my mom asked me somewhere between the second and third trip like honey I just don't understand why are you doing this <laughs> I like think me either mom <laughs> I think that's an interesting question to uh-huh. pose to yourself like okay why am I doing this mm-hmm. um and c- could I you know explain that to someone with a very different life experience than me and find a common ground mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you ever think about that? Like why? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of it. Yeah. I think you're totally spot on. I think that our culture has been completely sterilized or robbed of, or however you want to frame it of um, rites of passage. You yeah. know, we, our rites of passage as humans have been completely stripped down to Hallmark card occasions like Valentine's day, weddings, you know, weddings. What else do we have? Death. Maybe a bar, a bat mitzvah, getting hazed at a frat, right? There are like a few, but, and even those, like, even if you get too sentimental about what it is actually, what you're actually doing, people get a little squirmish, right? You're just like, oh, just get married and take the picture. You know, we're not actually talking (laughs) about like, you know, the eternal union of the masculine and the feminine and the traditional sense or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, you just don't want to get into the alchemical nature of these passages and that I think has deeply hurt us you know I mean I know that I've always yearned for that like that experience of being initiated into a greater 
community of things. And, you know, from an anthropological perspective, you could spend the rest of your life just studying different communities, um, rites of passage and initiatory. To me, the big thing is like, it creates a pause. It creates a time out of time where you really assess life and you know what it's like to go through a threshold experience. You are not the same person as you were when you leave the ceremony. You know, something happens in that night where time and space and memory and future and all of these things just kind of go back into God's workshop and you kind of map it out and go forth. Right. And that is so special. It's not easy, but it's necessary. And I think that these days plants and psychedelic helpers kind of forcefully catalyze that experience, but communities before that have known how to do that without the use of psychotropic you know, medicines like through rhythmic breathing, through drumming, through fasting, through rites of celibacy, through pilgrimages, through self-mutilation. I mean, there's tons of different ways that we get there. And so if people asked me, I would ask myself, it's, I felt, I still feel like it is now I'm on kind of like a break now, but I'd say it's like, it's a, it's a rite of passage. You know, it's an opportunity for me to stop the clock and just actually think like, what am I doing with this gift of life? What am I really doing? Am I really taking care of my relationships? Am I really walking in a good way? Because it's so, I mean, you know what it's like to wake up one morning and you're like, whoa, holy crap. Like what have I been doing for the last three months? You know, just so. Or three years. Or three years or 30 years, right? Or, yeah. you know, 60 years. I mean, and then there it just goes. If life is just one big run on sentence without any opportunity for ceremony or ritual or prayer and, you know, even take it, make it secular if you need to, you know, you don't need a belief in a higher deity, but at least just the magic of creating containers to observe and appreciate life is like huge. So I think that's been my main kind of commitment and attraction to ayahuasca as a catalyst or an opportunity to explore those spaces. Um, and my hope is that as ayahuasca and different plants or, or deal medicines begin to like continuously proliferate society. And hopefully we don't declaw it too much, right? Hopefully we don't take out the purging effects. Hopefully we don't take out all the uncomfortable things and just make it the happy, shiny things because you and I probably both know that like there's medicine in the purge, you know, there's, I personally could use a great purge right now. I think America could use <laughs> a really good like purge, you know? So yeah. yeah well, some might argue that fine. the purge is the medicine, that there is no, I mean, that's really what you're seeking yeah. Uh, yeah. to rid yourself of old ideas or old beliefs or yeah. And the ordeal part, I noticed that too of it was the, you know, sweat lodges, very similar mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. like all of these things involve some sort of hardship and bonding comes from that camaraderie comes from that a sense of, um, resiliency, a sense of confidence in yourself. If I can sit in a sweat lodge, then I can do a job interview or whatever, you know, it, it transfers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it builds your character, I guess you could say. 100%. And I'm thinking of myself on the floor of the sweat lodge, like, get me out of here. You know? <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm less like sexy and heroic. Sure. Are we all person as, I, <laughs> as I thought I was, but yeah. Right. Well, sometimes you learn in that moment of like you're sprawled on the floor clinging to the cold 
wet earth trying to be as low as possible to avoid the steam it's too hot in here yeah. you learn what do you learn well one to endure a hard thing uh-huh i think that's really important i think i had no sense of that before some of these ordeal things of like not being able to sit with my emotions mm-hmm. what better way to learn than be presented with like strong physical forces of nature that provoke your deepest feelings yeah. of fear and whatever. Yeah. there's nowhere to go <laughs> nowhere yeah. to go yeah yeah got six more hours of this yeah 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 try going in for once right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's like the teaching yeah right I mean yeah and I think that you know to what you're saying it's like ceremony itself are kind of these you could say like macro or meta, they're these kind of poetic bite-sized symbolic containers to act out these things, you know, like now that you know that you can sit out through a sweat lodge, you know, like, okay, I might be an awkward transition in life where I don't have a job. I broke up with my girlfriend. My parents hate me, you know, the whole five yards, nine yards, but you can just like take the heat. You can take the heat, you know, and we, I think we really do hardwire ourselves. We program ourselves to, to believe in ourselves when we can go through those things. But otherwise, we're just like, what else is really going to be teaching us, you know? Well, we don't, you're right that we don't have those ceremonies. Even what we do have in terms of like holidays has morphed so far from the original thing. Like mm-hmm. arguably we have, I don't know, Christmas or something, but that's become... I don't know the origin, the pagan roots of it, but now it's just like, get, buy some shit. Yeah. Yeah. Get, buy some shit. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And there used to be, I guess it was in part of indigenous cultures as like celebrations of the changing of the seasons and things like that, mm-hmm. using those as opportunities mm-hmm. to reflect, like mm-hmm. all those rituals. I didn't have any of that. I think I've learned to pick some of that stuff up through, uh, through ayahuasca, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a cool thing to be said about like, you know, I think a cool, I think a positive new age practice, if you, and new age is like kind of a dirty word, but let's look at it truly like new age, right? This kind of heralding in a new multicolored perspective to like help us through a new area um, is like, you know, Christmas is rooted in Yule, you know, all of the, uh, many of these Christian celebrations are actually just mapped onto different pagan celebrations and then kind of remixed but beneath that was actually like a thing you know so can we connect to like what is that what is it about the smell in the air what is it about the fruits that are you know being born what is it you know just like kind of connect to that elemental nature of holidays and like you'll start to like get it you know I recently got quite into astrology and studying like cosmic (laughs) bodies both on Instagram through memes, which is an extremely helpful way of learning about these archetypes, but also like actually studying, you know, cause the, the, the shifting of cosmic bodies. And it's just like such an amazing way okay. to get into the seasons. I, I can't give you that. like a whole thing. You don't but... have to give me the whole thing, but I'm curious about that because what's interesting talking to you is you go back and forth between like, I'm very rational and I am surprised that at the way of, um, you framing some of these like features of the ayahuasca community as more looking back as like an anthropologist or something. But yeah. then when we go into astrology, that's one where I recoil a bit 
I still have uh-huh. some sense of like uh, Western rationalism making me astrology. Yeah, hold on, pump the brakes. And so, <laughs> so walk me through that of like what what you're learning, what's appealing there. Um, yeah. How do yeah. you think about it? Well, I really liked, I remember, okay, to go back to like rational anthropologist hat, I remember there was an essay written by this guy, Kenneth Tupper, Ken Tupper. He's written pretty extensively about like the economics of ayahuasca, but at some point he was talking about, and I wish I could say which, you could just look at him, Ken Tupper. Um, And he would kind of describe, you know, the scientist and the shaman were one person. The yeah. doctor and the dreamer were like one person, right? Like the doctor would receive information in dreams and like the astronomer was also an astrologer. So all of these, the priest was, you know, I was going to try to find in another alliteration, but you Something get it. Else, like, yeah. right. Like they were like, all of these disciplines weren't so disparate. They yes. were together at some point. Right. So to me, astrology is like, a much more pleasant way of studying and understanding astronomy, right? But I'm not an astronomer because it's a little bit like I have no interest in looking at an astronomy textbook, but it's a beautiful way for me to feel like an astronomer, which is like, wow, look at, you know, this constellation is moving this way. And actually I know a little, like the earth is tilted this way. And like, oh, this is how the sun and the moon and Venus is like this. And then it's a combination of, to me, it can be a combination of both poetic and rational thinking, if you really want to kind of put them together. It's like, and again, we were talking about meaning making earlier it's like Mm -hmm. if you are confident in understanding that what i'm doing is ascribing meaning to perhaps a meaningless world like then you're good to go right like then it's no issue i'm not gonna like start to pick a fight with you and say capricorn (laughs) is this and i'm gonna die on this hill because it's that thing it's like i don't necessarily feel that way but what i do know is that like tarot also right you could or could not say there is some magical force that, you know, pulls the, you know, that is connected to you in the cards and the perfect thing will come up for you. You could say I'm becoming versed in a book of symbols and I am learning about different archetypes that manifest throughout aeons of human experience. I'm connecting to the ancient archetype of the Joker or, you know, the Queen of Cups or the Sagittarius or whoever they are. And we begin to know, we begin to see that they're all, it's like a wheel of different characters replaying in the world. And I love looking at the world in that way and saying, oh, it's kind of like that, you know, oh, I see that quality in that. And it's just kind of a fun way to look at the world, I think. So that's interesting is, do you think like comparing astrology and astronomy that with astrology, you're directly tapping like straight away into the meaning symbolism portion of it versus with astronomy, you'd start getting weighed down with like, what's the gravitational pull of mm. Saturn? How does that affect the rings? And instead you're like, oh, the rings are, I don't know, Venus is in retrograde or. Yeah. And that, that has some meaning to it and kind of activates that poetic part. But if yeah. you were too bogged down in the details of it, then you wouldn't get the same effect. Depends what you're going for. I hate math. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'll just say it. And if I just cannot, you know, I've just always sucked at it. And I just am scared of it. It's one of my you know, ongoing hurdles in life. So that to me doesn't feel like a place where my, you know, I can gallop freely. But, you know, I love understanding, you know, 
oh, the rings of Saturn, there's this like heavy thing about them. And, you know, I feel heavy. I mean, I'm currently in my Saturn return. And that is, our, you know, the archetype of that is, you know, kind of like obstacles, difficulty, rules, time, regulations. It's like a lot of those archetypes. And that for me, I don't know, it keeps me company. You know, it keeps me, it keeps my conceptual company, if that makes sense. Like, I don't feel like I'm just floating in a soup of like, well, I don't know what the heck is going on. It's like, well, life is freaking weird. I know that this time is associated with this thing. I'm actually feeling like it's kind of true. Okay, great. You know, and it just helps me understand because we all have our own mythologies, right? Yeah. Choose your mythology. So, yeah. It is a way of kind of interpreting and making sense of the world. And we all do it. Like, I don't particularly do astrology, but I'm sure I have my own superstitions and rituals and things that are blind to me. And only by coming in close contact with someone, I'm like, you're doing what? You're believing what? (laughs) Yeah. And you go to the, you go to the Amazon, you want to talk about superstitions and rituals and taboos. It's like, yeah, you don't walk under that tree when that fruit is, you know, ripe. You definitely don't want to leave the house if you hear that owl or like, oh my God, I, you know, I once read that the Shipibo are sea rainbows is actually like a, 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 the hand of sorcery, you know? So wow. we, yeah, and I mean, living in that, end, but you know what it is? I think it points to a greater conversation with nature. It's It points to interrelated ecologies it, it's a spiritual ecology it's like my the the movement of these creatures and the migration of this and the you know the the weather and that it's like suddenly you are just infused by life itself you know and suddenly it starts to feel a lot less lonely now when that becomes to become an impediment and you like, Oh my God, I can't do anything. You know, that might be an issue, but I think that we could really benefit from some more magical thinking, not for the sake of magic itself, but you know, because it reanimates our world and hopefully it makes us more compassionate and it makes us more aware of what's happening around us. And within the broader context of global change for the worse, in some cases, you know, the loss of biodiversity or forest degradation and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it really behooves us to like actually listen, you know, and take a closer look. And I think that ayahuasca and different plant medicines and even things like astrology, right, can all be tools to more finely attune us to the more subtle changes that are happening in our natural world and happening to us. We're just a little bit too kind of like tough headed to see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, take it or leave it, you know, but I, I love that about the forest is that it's just the people are so in tune and they're in, they're in their own tune, but their own tune is actually in the greater tune. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're like completely like, in sync with their environment, whereas right. we are not. Right. Right. Like one of my favorite, well, yeah, right. Like, and we make our environment. They like, they make from, you know, it's a slight difference, but it's like. I remember there was a great, when I was doing my talk my with Shane, when we were doing head talks, um, I would give this example of um, tobacco and how, you know, in the Amazon, they use this plant Nicotiana rustica. It has a higher alkaloid, nicotine alkaloid content, which I'm sure you, you know, I'm a pot. Yeah. It's like almost 10 times, right? Yeah. It's like a big, big pop of heavy stuff. And, um, and they'll, you know, often start 
rituals. They have a whole discipline, a tabaquero, somebody who's disciplined in the art of tobacco, of healing with tobacco and, or harming with tobacco. And, you know, the common saying might be, you know, we, we use tobacco to protect ourselves. It, it keeps away the bad spirits, right? If you want to look at it from a scientific perspective, you could say, oh, tobacco is actually like an anti- parasitic, you know, it's an insecticide. It keeps the quote bad spirits away. So when the shaman blows tobacco over his plants or his farms, it's true. The microorganisms that may be harmful to a person disappear. The bad spirits that are invisible go away. And so it took that enchanted worldview for them to articulate what they were empirically observing but they may have been observing the same thing just through a more kind of poetic lens yeah, or language. Well, we find that all the time with all of these traditions. It's, 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 that can be what's kind of frustrating about our scientific paradigm is refusing to acknowledge something that's so plainly good. I mean, you can't say mm -hmm. ayahuasca is universally good, but it's pretty repeatable, the outcomes. You know, like that's mm -hmm. part of the scientific method, right? Repeatable. It's pretty repeatable. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of a, like a, a dismissal of that. I mean, it's changing, it's changing a lot now, uh, but mostly out of a necessity of like, you know, in terms of psychedelic assisted therapy or something, it's coming from like having so many traumatized veterans and nothing mm -hmm. to do with it. They're like, okay, mm -hmm. sure we'll give you a couple mil to play with mushrooms or ayahuasca <laughs> or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's only because the problem has gotten so big, not because anyone wants to examine their worldview or. Mm, good point. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Or if you want to look at it through a more nefarious lens, they're trying to neutralize the problem. So the issue can continue without the repercussions. That's a darker way of looking to, at it. To but, you know. keep being able to control population or propagate well, war or. I, I was going to say war. Yeah. I mean, this was a thought that I, I don't cling on to it much anymore, but I do remember looking at the Mercer family funding maps, PTSD studies and yeah, kind of, that. kind of some more like questionable political quasi political interests in psychedelic healing and therapy. And you can't help but look at, you know, other investments or donations or whatever you have it in their portfolio and see like, oh, there's a common motif happening here. And you can see how, you know, making more efficient and less making healing faster, like the pain of post-traumatic. <laughs> so you can disorder. damage people uh, more. more. Right. And have less repercussions. Wow. Right. Something like that. That's dark. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, but like, sure. or another it's way. a good way to make a war machine, right? It's a good way to make a war machine. It's also kind of either buying absolution or. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Right. If people are going to be doing this anyway, we want to be in on it so we can control it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just horn. You know, what's that word? Shoehorning. Shoehorning. Yeah. Horning him. <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, right. I mean, gosh, yeah. I when I was writing the when plants dream, I kind of stopped thinking about it now, probably just because my little brain couldn't take it no more. But it was uh, it was deeply concerning to me, you know, to see some of the, you know, not to be not to play like the red and blue game, but some, you know, more right wing conservative investors take a really like strong liking to psychedelic industry and just try and understand what that's about. If their background really is so conservative and anti-drug and they were previously funding the war against drugs, why are they suddenly, you know, moving towards it? And you could, you could just say, you know, it's just follow the money. I mean, it's clearly like one of the fastest growing opportunities for venture capital. So I, you know, I would, if I were them, if that's what motivated me, but also, I think it's it behooves us if you are kind of attempting to think a little critically about the direction that the psychedelic industry, as it were, is going, which it is now, you know, um, what are what are what are people's motivations, you know, so. Yeah, that's that's why I kind of try to work in the environmental sector and hopefully my big dream is to like bridge those worlds together, you know. Yeah, just that thought like has like my stomach churning. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I'm going to have to sit with that one. Yeah, think about it. I mean, you know, but I I don't know. I don't know. Just if you stop thinking about it, it goes away. (laughs) That's right. No, I don't know. But then again, you know, and then and then perhaps you can pray that there is some inherent benevolence in these medicines and that people people do do mean well, but. I think within my circles in the psychedelic field and people who are much more kind of mature in this field than I am, um, there is a lot of conversation about, you know, increasing diversity and inclusion, not for the sake of it itself, but because it will literally act as like a barrier in preventing like really questionable things from happening with these mind altering substances, you know, like this is not a joke. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's an interesting angle of I know you're you're close to time so maybe this will be our last topic mm-hmm. um, it, it struck me what, when thinking about um, the way I've changed in regards to experiencing ayahuasca and indigenous traditions and part of that being drinking with people outside of my usual social status and area mm-hmm. um it seems that this other thread of psychedelics that i was kind of brought up in is really like white male centric and mm-hmm. there seems to be a lot of consequences to that one of them that i this is a private theory of like everything's always about mind expansion but like mm-hmm. none of these guys ever talk about like heart stuff yeah because i think they're like you know in some way emotionally stunted or just male or whatever it is, but there's like a lot less of that. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest transformation for me was less like the trippy mind stuff. Mm -hmm. I kind of, that was par for the course for me, but the heart opening experience of ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and ceremonial Mm -hmm. medicine was like Mm -hmm. so far different than how I used to do it. Right. Like my go, you know, like tripping on acid to be more productive at work, right? It's different. Yeah. And there's that whole school yeah. of psychedelic people. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's where the question of culture comes in, you know, where maybe people who are from, you know, as you describe, like maybe a more white male productive kind of mindset, maybe they just don't even know they have permission to tap into heart spaces, you know, maybe it is the cool thing to do to run with the wolves who are, you know, in Silicon Valley microdosing to make money, make more money for their bosses, you know, maybe, maybe it, that I think that's part of where like the greater conversation of like permission to drop into those things. And also like, I would say if facing stereotypes of, or at least like trying to tackle, trying to like run down, you know, I think that unfortunately there's a bit of a stereotype of like, Oh yeah, that dude in college that does mushrooms is a total bum. Right. <laughs> Versus like this guy that does acid and works at, you know, Apple is like this freaking genius, right? Like, can there yeah. be people who are both? Can there be people who lead with the heart, who give back to the world in a really kind and beautiful way, but are also at the cutting edge of technologies and who are really participating? They're the vanguards of the new, you know, Aquarian age and, you know, technology and all finance and all these different fields. And that's where I think each one of us can play a role. And I, and I do think that there's going to be that natural synthesis. I think that the nature of the internet and the culture together are creating a world of people who are realizing that there's, a, there's space in the human experience to be both of those things or to be more of those things, to be all of those things and not necessarily to, you know, figure neatly into one category, like floofy, you know, yeah. woo shaman or, you know, amazing it's kind of going back to the duality thing and balance of like maybe i was imbalanced in my lack of heart emotion but other people are there's definitely plenty of people who have too much heart and not enough brain going on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) and i don't judge that i don't say that pejoratively of like you know everyone's got this balance and we we all need to be chakras 101 you know yeah chakras 101 amazing technology it's that chakra technology has persisted for a reason it's because really studying those energetic centers archetypally if you will right maybe not literally but archetypally is just an amazing way to approach our implosions and exploded areas you know exploded heart chakra and imploded root chakra you know or like all these different things so well I secretly love all that stuff but sometimes depending (laughs) on my mood I can uh dismiss it do you yeah. have a, a resource or something on chakras that, cause you know, uh, a part I, of it is the packaging of like, if I were to see some shit on Instagram, like I'm going to dismiss yeah. it instantly. But if yeah. it was, if it was that same message in like a leather bound book, I might yeah. be like, Oh, ancient oh, knowledge. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's just because we're on the topic, the, so the way that I got brought to chakras apart from like, you know, seeing the flags hanging in the Himalayan art bookstore or whatever is, is, yeah. um, is through acting techniques. Actually. I had a, mm. I had a professor named Faye Simpson and she wrote this book called the lucid body. And she would study physical acting by looking at different chakra systems. And she wrote about it very beautifully where, you know, you study the body from the root to the sacral, to the solar, to the heart, to the throat, to the third eye and to the crown. And being able to read somebody on the street and actually kind of get a sense of 
how they walk, you know, do they have a powerful, are they more rooted in the ground? Are they kind of higher fluttery? How do they speak? Do they hug, you know, by pulling their groin on you or are they kind of retracted and just, you can actually study the body and the energy of somebody with this kind of chakra approach. And I think that's a very good gateway book into just studying it. Like it has a very practical application, you know? as an actor, but maybe as a professional, maybe as a people person, you know, saying, okay, this person appears to have, you know, a bit of a blockage in their throat, right? Or like a bit of a blockage in their sacral area or an explosion of the root chakra, that big, you know, dude that just knocks everything over when he walks into a bar and spits on the floor, the little kid who's scared and can't find their mom in the market, you know, those are all chakras just kind of circling around, I think. Cool. Yeah. I could get into that. (laughs) Sold.